The following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HG2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, we must have been good last week. Only one disclaimer. Isn't isn't it comforting to know? That's how you know we're going to have a quality show when we only get one disclaimer for the week. They're not very worried about us. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, the the guests we're having on this week are great. I mean, Kelsey Trainer is going to be on at the top of the show. And then Dan Good is going to be on at 430. I mean, you don't get better than that. No, we've got a good setup going on. And the, the Phillies decided that if we needed something to talk about in between, they gave us some fodder. I've asked you for weeks if Joe Girardi survives. The answer is no, Jeff. He does not survive this. Yeah, but the big news, as we were talking about before, the, I think we're before we were on the air, or might have been when we were actually on the air, is that their their new bench coach is Mick Kalitri. Yeah. So we now have the guy that was the scouting coordinator for all the prospects, and I use that term very loosely, that are there now. After dropping for their last five series, 12 mm-hmm. of the last 15 games, the Phillies with the forced, fourth highest payroll, 12 games back, had to do something, right? I'm lost. You know for years that I have thought that Dusty Wathen should be the manager of this team. Can't get a chance. He is sitting in the dugout. He is a guy who has come up through their system and been successful in their minor league system. He has groomed and helped grow their prospects, the ones that were good. Why is he not the manager now? What are they waiting for not giving him the opportunity? What did Rob Thompson do as the bench coach that warranted him becoming the manager? And if you dare tell me that it's because he's going to change the lineups, why don't you tell me what the lineup is today that's any different than it was on Wednesday? No, no, it's the same lineup. Schwarber's leading off. And, uh, well, no, the good news The only is- thing that they did this week is they didn't bump Zach Eflin's start for belly falter. That's the only thing different about... They have, they have time for that. With my <laughs> luck, he'll, he'll be pitching tomorrow when I'm there. So let's talk about this uh, record of futility over the past few years. The Phillies have gone through four different managers. Ryan Sandberg, Pete McCannon, Gabe Kapler, and Joe Girardi since firing Charlie Manuel in 2013. None has lasted. That's a Hall of Fame list. None has lasted more than two plus seasons. Uh-huh. Combined five hundred and sixty-eight and seven hundred and one. Joe Girardi managed fewer games for the Phillies than Ryan Sandberg did, and Kelsey a, can't get on soon enough. And had a worse winning <laughs> percentage than Gabe Kapler. But here's the the crazy thing. Here's the upside. Go ahead. Not just the Phillies. Yeah. We we love uh, some Jim Curtin here as mm-hmm. we let Kelsey Trainer on. She'll be joining us in a second. So we love us some Jim Curtin, right? Yeah. Okay. Jim Curtin was hired in 2015 as the union's full-time head coach. Since then, the four other major franchises of Valley Sports have had 12 different coaches and managers. And when they hire a new coach for the Flyers and Phils, they'll be up to 14. 14. Since Curtin, we'll take. So now that you've now that you've gotten that off your system, yes. why, Why don't we welcome a guest and talk some substance? We will. We'll get her off mute over there and welcome a wonderful guest. We are so excited to get some time with lawyer, producer, writer. I don't even know what other. You're not even talking about me this time. No, I'm not. Uh, not. (laughs) Jeff uh, loves when I do the lawyer thing because he does that in his day job. Kelsey Trainer, these are exciting times for women in sports. Thanks for giving us a few minutes to talk about it all. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Uh, this is exciting. We, um, we've been watching some of what you've been saying as, as this process goes forward. And I, I wanted to start with a tweet that you have pinned from 2019 on your Twitter account uh, regarding a 400-meter race that illustrates why women need more sports coverage from the media. Can you talk about that for our audience, about what the difference is and what that illustrates? Yeah, it's really to illustrate um, the the kind of head start that men's sports has had in terms of investment and coverage. Um, and people don't really talk about that enough when they start comparing men's sports to, and women's sports to either revenue or viewership. Uh, they really try to do apples to apples, but you can't, right? Like when you look back at, you know, soccer in Europe, women's soccer was banned. Before that, they were selling out stadiums, 50,000 people, you know, in the early 1900s were there. Um, you know, the NBA for the first, whatever, 20, 25 years wasn't profitable at all. Um, and so it's really just kind of giving that visual explanation of like, if you're going to start a 400 meter race and everybody's going to start from the exact same point, right, then it's not a fair race. So women's sports is in that outside lane. And if they're starting from there um, and they're not kind of staggered upwards, like you would in a 400 meter race, um, then it's it's going to keep remaining that way. So it, it's just a really a visual to illustrate the the you know, equality versus equity, right? Things that can be done to really help women's sports, you know, to get you to be able to compare men's and women's sports as apples to apples. And then, you know, if the viewership and the revenue isn't there, right, then it's a valid argument. Um, but it's a really hard thing to, to do right now when uh, men's sports have had, you know, such a such an advanced start. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is even to me more frustrating than that. It, with women's soccer, it, they're not starting at the same place. Women's soccer is light years ahead of men's soccer in the success that they've had during most of our lifetimes. And yet they have had to fight tooth and nail to get equal pay, despite the fact that they are the team that most of this country gets to see in a World Cup. And they are the team that is successful in the World Cup. And they are the ones whose names you know and jerseys that you wear. And, and you're, you've been involved in that process. What has it been like for you to now see that there is equal pay amongst the teams? Honestly, I didn't, I didn't know that it would happen. Um, you know, there's a lot that went into it. And you had, you know, back in May 2020, uh, the judge in the case actually dismissed the equal pay portion. So it was on appeal. Um, and part of, you know, the memo in, in dismissing the case was comparing the men's and the women's collective bargaining agreements. Again, we're talking about comparing apples to oranges, right? You couldn't. The women had guaranteed salaries. The men didn't, right? But that's also because soccer worldwide, on the men's side, it, there's so much more money in it, right? For, for a number of the reasons that, that I've just stated before, right? The investment, the coverage that's always is, existed there. Um, and so, you know, a lot of t some of the some of the language that came out in the judge's opinion was, well, saying, well, and actually, if you actually go back and look and compare the amount of money within the time frame of the lawsuit, the women's team actually made more. The reason that they made more was because they won. If they had not won, they would not have made more, right? Because the men's contract was really built on bonuses. Um, and obviously the FIFA money, which is, which has always been an issue. So I didn't think it would get done. Um, I had always hoped. Um, and so there's been a lot that's transpired. There's a lot of kind of higher ups at us soccer that are no longer in charge. Um, and Cindy Parlo Cohn, who is the current president of us soccer, she was a former player herself. She's been in this fight 
for equal pay uh, as a player. So she, she kind of brought that perspective and trust back into the situation. And then, you know, I have to give credit to the U.S. men's national team, right? They essentially had to, they basically kind of gave up their upside, right? If they don't do well, um, then they're, if, if they don't do well, then they're going to be fine. If they keep, if they start winning, which they haven't, um, you know, then they are going to be, they are going to be giving up money with the, you know, the FIFA prize money now being pooled together and then split equally. You know, in terms of the long-term prospects of, of women sports and business, I, I've seen you say that it's bad business to not invest in women and be in the women's sports business. Explain to our listeners why I agree with you. Uh, but for people who don't know why. Yeah. So, so often, obviously women's sports has, as you know, owners, you know, maybe even players, people have considered it a charity, right? Like that's always been the mentality. You know, you have the kind of the girl dad thing, right. Of like, I want to take my daughter to this and have her see this, um, you know, go back to like, you know, young boys and girls should be seeing this. Um, and when you talk about the investment side of things, men's sports have been invested in for so long um, and they're going to continue to be invested in. And that's good. That's a good thing. Um, but if you think about it in, in terms of upward growth, right, men's sports is going to kind of gradually keep ebbing and flowing upwards. Women's sports is down here, right? It's on a steady growth path, but the growth and the potential is so much higher. It has not even reached any of its potential. Um, and so that's why we say, like, it, you need to get in now, right? You're, you're already past kind of that, like, pre-seed, like, if you think about it, like a VC startup world, you're already kind of past that like pre-seed seed stage. You're, you're maybe getting into more towards like a series A, um, but you should get in now because the RI, the ROI is going to be there and you're already starting to see it. Take Rewind that a little bit back even further. Um, most men's sports are not profitable, right? But that doesn't stop people from investing in it, right? Because there are business there are, there are a bunch of uh, business benefits from it, right? Whether that's tax purposes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I always say, you know, invest in women. And that's really applied to the women's sports space because, um, it, you know, it, there, it's not a charity thing, right? Like there is so much growth potential there and, and you're starting to, to really see it. Well, and we, we talked to, to somebody who, you know, Susie Petroselli last week, uh, and we're talking about investments. There's now this opportunity. There was this interesting idea out in Minnesota of, of having basically kind of crowdfunding opportunities to kind of invest. Jason and I actually tried to invest and it was closed. We couldn't yeah. do it. We need you to hook us up. We hear <laughs> I got you. I'm an, I'm an investor. I'm a quote unquote community owner um, in that. And and yeah, and I actually just was on a, a panel yesterday and it was talking about the expansion of the WNBA. Uh, they just an article just came out and they're going to be one or two new teams announced, two new markets announced by the end of the year. Philly is actually on that short list. Um, so, you know, Wanda Sykes, Don Staley have been kind of mentioned in that potential investment group. Um, and it's exciting. They just the, the WNBA just raised seventy five million dollars in terms of like marketing and, and what they're doing. Um, but I asked that question. I was like, can we kind of get a more community owned thing? in the WNBA or the NWSL? And, and the answer is probably not because the, the price is going up. The price is going way, way up um, as it should be. And, and there's almost like a FOMO, like a fear of missing out uh, about being in the women's sports space. Um, there's only so many teams you can buy. You see the, like the massive sale of Chelsea that just happened. These sports teams are selling for, for billions and billions of dollars. 
Jason uh, and, and I tried to buy Chelsea too. We couldn't. They didn't let you in. Yeah, no, they didn't quite qualify for that. <laughs> and the the uh, the uh, Todd Bowley, his group actually tried to buy a women's sports team last year, a women's soccer team uh, in in the states. Um, and so there's so much opportunity um, to get in, but it is. I mean, it's 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 almost it's good and bad that it's starting the that it's starting to go towards the billionaires instead of us, you know, regular common folk. Yeah, but how important when when you talk about you just mentioned Wanda Sykes and Dawn Staley, how important is it not just to have an increase in ownership interest, but have women as the people that are leading the organizations? I think it's important, right? I'm not going to sit here and say that, like, uh, you know, women don't have faults, right, or can't be bad leaders or bad people. Like, I'm not going to do that. But um, in in terms of like having the same opportunities to succeed, um, I I think it's very important. And I've I've always said that I think more women with capital, more women with money, to be able to invest in these things is is the game changer. It's the best thing Um, because there is some shared sense of like, you know, your work experience, right? Or have you been part of the the old boys club, right? Where you just don't feel like your voice is heard. Um, so I, I don't think it's it's the only way, but I do think it's important and it's I I like to see it. Um and and I think it I think it's a little bit of a game changer in terms of potentially the, the culture of the organization, right? We haven't seen it. We, you really, you really don't see it. Right. So how are you going to know what it's going to look like? I, I obviously think it's about time we start seeing it uh, and seeing what it looks like. You know, you talk about potential game changers. Uh, how do you think NIL money will impact women's athletics in terms of getting more money in the hands of, of female athletes who some of them have higher profiles than their male counterparts? Yeah, if you look at all the data that has come out since NIL has essentially been a free for all, um, I think the top like three of the top five sports and earners are women's sports, right? Women's basketball, softball, volleyball. Um, there's always been a massive audience for it, right? The, the I think it's on currently right now the women's college the softball World Series, though that always draws huge numbers. Um, and if you look at the social media statistics, which is a huge part of NIL, right? That's a huge place where these young athletes are getting these brands and the the, the money the, or the brands out there. Um, the women athletes have larger followings. Um, and so I always thought it was a red, kind of a red airing argument in terms of like how NIL would impact women's sports. A lot of people said, you know, it would be a Title IX issue and all of these non-revenue sports would suffer. but the women athletes are are doing really, really well. Uh, you know, Gatorade, and I think it just came out too, Gatorade has started investing more money in women athletes uh, than, than men athletes or women's sports than men's sports. So I think it's, it's, it's happening and it's great for women's sports. And kind of off of that, women's sports, there's so much less opportunity to play professionally in the women's sports space. There just is. There's less leagues. There's less roster sizes. And so when NAL obviously was not allowed, you're taking away probably one of the only opportunities these athletes, these women athletes have to make money off of their sport. Um, And so I think it's a huge advancement for, for these young women athletes. It's going to change the game for sure. It's, I know it's, it's an interesting uh, tool and and a conversation around recruiting and um, but I personally, I, I like it and I think it's going to, going to lead to some really, really cool, um, advancements in this space. 
you know, you've talked about the the struggle with regard to the number of opportunities there are for women in sports. You're on the board of the Sports Bra Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, Sarah Dwyer, uh, she's actually, uh, you know, I, I met her through the the women's sports space, and she was on a trip, I believe, and I forget where she was, but she said it never occurred to her that, like, the lack of a sports bra in some underdeveloped countries was a barrier to sport. Like she just never thought about it. Um, and so when there's already so many barriers, it, you know, you don't think about that little thing, right. That, that could really make such a massive impact on young women. And so it just, we, you know, we go around and we collect, um, get donations of sports bras and deliver them. Not, not, everywhere across the world. We have a relationship with um, Australia and they're doing a lot there uh, ahead of the world cup. That's going to be in Australia and New Zealand. Um, And then just neighborhoods, communities all across the United States and across the world. And just doing this one little thing that, that helps keep women and young girls in sports longer. Cause there's, there's a huge dropout rate compared to, to young, young boys. You know, we talk about um, people who are impacted with it being Pride Month. Um, you have an invest, pay, hire merchandise uh, that prote- proceeds go and benefit Athlete Alley to combat trans, anti-trans and other anti-LGBTQ legislation. Can you talk to us about the effort, the shirt, and, and some of the homophobia and transphobia faced in sport and athletic communities? Yeah, I mean... You know, there's so many people fighting against um, trans athletes participation in sports. Um, And, you know, you have the swimmer Leah Thomas at Penn, who, you know, people were up in arms about. Um, And I'm of the opinion, right, that there's there's so many people who are fighting against trans athlete participation, whether trans men or trans women in sport in the name of like quote unquote fairness and really just not understanding what sport is the vehicle it is. Right. And that like people who are, you know, transitioning or going through that process, they're not doing it for fun. Right. This is like a true identity, um, their true identity. And they face so much more abuse than if, if, they didn't do it. Right. So it's not something people just like start doing as a good time. And, and the narratives around like, you know, cheating and unfairness, um, they're really, there's so much time spent around that, um, that it's really not, uh, an argument that I, that I entertain because it, it just doesn't really happen. Um, and then the invest and pay higher merch line really stem from this idea of like, what are actionable things we can do to advance women in sports and in the workplace? Sports are a microcosm of society. So if women are underpaid in sports, they're underpaid in society, et cetera, et cetera. And like, what can you do to help advance that? You can invest, right? With your time, your money, you can hire women, right? That's so simple. And then, especially in the sports space, there's a lot of like freelance and you know, do me this favor. I need this done. Right. It's like, no, pay people their value for their work. And so that kind of where pay women came in. Um, and it just, it resonates with some people, other people hate it. That's fine too. Um, but it's, it's been a fun thing to, to, to have. And, you know, we've had like zero paid advertising around it and it's already grossed like over a hundred thousand dollars. And the proceeds have gone to athlete ally, black girl hockey club to get young, uh, girls, black, girls and women involved in hockey, which is like not typically an inclusive space. 
Um, and so it's been, it's been really cool. I love seeing it. I know Grant Williams, who's playing for the Celtics. I'm hoping they win because he's worn the shirt into a bunch of games. CJ McCollum, a bunch of NBA um, NFL players have worn it. So it's been really cool to see um, the support in, in the, the male sports space. It's cool what you're doing in terms of raising awareness and, and getting creative in terms of giving people the opportunity to show their own support too. Before we let you go, uh, Jeff knows I'm fascinated by the lines and integration of gaming into sports. Now you, in addition to all your advocacy are now the VP of business affairs for the gaming society. Uh, tell us about this next step. And, and one of the things I saw in there is bet on women. Uh, talk us about the opportunities for gaming and women athletes. Yeah. So, you know, obviously sports betting has always been a taboo topic. Um, and with the Supreme Court giving the go ahead um, for, for it to happen, you see so much money um, that these sports books are investing and that they're making off of the back of the athletes. And so we're really about getting some of that money into the hands of the athletes, obviously not in an irresponsible way or in a way that encourages it, but right. Like it just understanding that, you know, gamification is a way of community, right? Like I never watched any other football game besides an Eagles game until I started playing fantasy football. Then I was watching every game. I'm like, I need, when Alshon Jeffrey was on the Chicago bears, I was like, I need him to get two touchdowns today. Like, I started watching those games. And so it's just translating that into the women's sports side of things, right? It's not always betting, but like, right, fantasy sports and free-to-play games, things that really build that conversation in that community because the studies show that um, a lot of betting um, really does have to do with like that community. You're on the golf course, you know, you're with your buddies, you're betting on every shot, right? And that's really, it's less about the money and it's more about the community aspect of it. You haven't seen me play. I'm not betting on my shot. <laughs> and, and Jeff just often complains about his fantasy team. But, you know, what we saw this week, be careful between Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson and Mike Trout. You know, fantasy sports could go a little bit overboard. We've seen now. So. I, I love that. I love, but see, I love that, right? All, all press is good press, right? That really creates a conversation. And I'm also a firm believer of like women's sports, the coverage, it shouldn't always be sunshine and roses, right? Cause that's not, and it's also not what makes the athlete or the sport interesting, the drama, the intrigue, all of that stuff should be covered um, in the same way that it is, it is covered in men's sports. You know, Kevin Durant is getting all of this coverage right now on things that he's talking about on social media and going back and forth with Stephen A. Smith. He's not even playing, right? But he's getting all of this coverage because of that. Um, and I love it. I love it all. I love the good, the bad, the drama, um, and just leveraging that on the women's sports side to um, really, really focus on how we can improve some of that um, equity to, to really even it out into equality. Well, he's doing a good job building his brand, and we hope you'll keep coming back as women get to build their brand. We really appreciate the time and uh, having the conversation with us. Uh, you have a great day. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Take it easy. Jeff, you, you know, you look at the opportunities for women. We'll have to get from Kelsey where we can get our investment uh, into Minnesota FC. We did try that this week. Uh, we're, we're checking we, that out. We, we, will, uh, we will own a sports team sometime soon. We, because there's no chance that we play for a sports team, so we must go another. Hey, <laughs> speak for yourself. I, you are not speaking for me. There. You I have not given up the ghost yet. But you didn't get chosen either. I had no shot and just quit. You at least. I played games. You yes. You you did. Yes, I did. You know I I mentioned. You know, you know she said 
all press is good press. We finally found out as a result of this whole Tommy Pham, Jock Peterson thing, what Mike Trout is not good at. And it's apparently league manager for fantasy football. Poor guy. He's the best player in baseball. He's good at everything. What? Got totally thrown under the bus. So for our listeners who don't know at this point, Tommy Pham of the Reds and San Francisco outfielder Jock Peterson got in a feud and Tommy Pham walked up to him and slapped him in the outfield. So they were in a fantasy football league, which had a $10,000 buy-in. Peterson placed players on injured reserve. Fam did So gambling in sports for athletes is okay now, apparently. Uh, well, fantasy yeah. sports were okay before. Uh, I know that's not gambling. It was yeah, legalized. No, it's not gambling, Jeff. Right, I know right. all about it. I've heard it from you. So Fam got suspended for three days. But my favorite part is that the reporters questioned Trout about it. So <laughs> Tommy Fam said Trout's the worst commissioner in fantasy sports. He allowed a lot of S to go on unsolved. Okay, whatever. So you go to Trout and he goes, every com- he hadn't decided whether he's going to take the duties of being a commissioner again, but he goes, every commissioner I know always gets booed. <laughs> it's like, what is Trout going to say to this? It's a fantasy football league, Jeff. How big an ovation is he going to get tonight? Bigger than any of the Phillies to go out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Look, this is the closest Philly fans are going to see the trout playing in Citizens Bank Park. Unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, you know, the funny thing is we've had conversations over the last couple of years when all these ridiculous rumors come out about how he, he's going to leave there. And, we, and when he signed the extension, everybody said, well, he's never going to be in the playoffs. He should have come here. The Angels have a better chance of making the playoffs than the Phillies do this year. Can he throw? Bullpen, maybe? Yeah, I'm sure he can. I mean, we, could, arm. we could use that. Mm-hmm. If we wanted to. If uh, I see Andrew Bellotti in the ninth or tenth inning, one more time. So one more time. Here's the thing that I don't get. We keep seeing Kyle Schwarber leading off. I don't get uh, that either. Oduble Herrera on a major league roster. Why is Andrew Bellotti in that role when you have Sir Anthony Dominguez with a 1.83 ERA and Brad Hand with a 1.29 ERA? Why are you using them for one pitch in the seventh inning? When you need arms that are actually reliable and pitching well, like Kniebel may want to be doing it, but he's not. I want to do it too. I'm not going in there. I mean, come uh, on. It, just because he wants to do it doesn't mean that he should be doing it. Sir Anthony Dominguez should get a shot. Brad Hand should get a shot. Do you know we're actually not the worst? We have the eighth highest ERA in baseball, ranked third in walks. But they're getting ahead. Oh, yeah. But how are they doing in blown saves? And forget just blown saves losses. You know, well, it was uh, amazing to see. I think Knebel had like three blown saves when I was there on Friday, on Monday, when that. And, and it wasn't just, oh, he's only got three blown saves. Yeah, but he had like four losses. He only he's had, a relief pitcher. He's been in baseball for eight years. He's only got 68 saves. I don't know who thought he was this top line closer for the team. George Hardy. I tried to say maybe they should make some personnel changes. And you read to me the options that are down there in the minors. They ain't making no personnel changes. I am shocked that you made it to the show. Because yeah. when I because you had I'm gonna throw you right under right Go now. Ahead. You you had an idea that actually in theory was very good, which is that Ranger Suarez should be moved to the bullpen. But then I asked you, who in the world are you going to start? There is no sixth starter on this team. There is no starter at AAA. There is no starter at AA. That was the thing. It wasn't that you asked me who was going to start. It was that you read one by one the options. 
There are guys in the minors, starters, that have an over two whip. Over two. Yeah, they're they're terrible. Yeah. And so so who is your replacement at that point? It, it is it is very, very bad. Jeff, why don't we skip the break till later? Because we've got Dan Good joining us. Dan, we're just talking about Joe Girardi and the wonderful Phillies bullpen, because nothing going on here in Philly sports today, right? No, not at all. <laughs> well, wait, Dan, before we start, you have your book there, and we mm-hmm. want to talk about your book, but you also have a bobblehead there. Which bobblehead is it? It's a bobblehead of Caminiti. It's oh, uh, look at that. <laughs> the, the Padres did a giveaway a couple of seasons ago. They actually, it was, uh, it was honoring the 1998 team, and it was uh, Greg Vaughn, Trevor Hoffman, and Tony Gwynn and Ken. That was a fun team. All right. We, we brought him on quick because we were talking about Joe Girardi, baseball man uh, with his latest biography, author of the new biography this week, out this week, about baseball star Ken Caminiti playing through the pain. Dan Good. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is pretty cool. You're out there. Tell us what it means for you to hold your book this week as it gets released and gets some pretty good reviews from people. I don't say that as surprising, by the way, just kind of for our audience. It's surreal. It's surreal to actually hold this book um, and and even listen to the audio book. I was listening to the audio book on the day of release and, you know, he's reading back my words and it was so surreal and strange and you know, people are taking pictures of it at baseball stadiums or across the country or finding it in bookstores in Nashville. And I'm like, that's my book. It's it's out there. It's 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 so interesting to carry around the story for so long and then have it out in the world. And, you know, now you're you know waiting for the reactions to come in, waiting for people to finish reading uh, reactions I've gotten so far have been positive, but it's always scary and exciting and interesting. One of the things when we have authors like you on talking about subjects like this, we're always interested to find out how hard was it get to have people talk to you about the subject, especially such a touchy subject within the sport of baseball. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And there were certainly people close to Ken uh, who were guarded and reticent and concerned about talking, concerned about what kind of angle, what um, motive I had in coming forward with this story. And um, it took time. You know, there were some people who decided they weren't going to talk to me and I completely respect that decision. And other people, you know, as I started talking to more and more people, they said, okay, well, if you talk to this person, I'll talk to you too. And, um, you know, and then sometimes you keep trying and over a couple of years, they finally say yes. And it was, it was meaningful to be able to, you know, bring those walls down a little bit, but it, it was tough. It was tough with a a story like Ken's with a topic like steroids and addiction and drug abuse, it was a really tough thing to to break down those walls. Well, one of those people that you spoke to was Bruce Bochy. And, and from what we hear, it wasn't the easiest thing to get a hold of him. What was that experience like getting a hold of him? And what happened? I spent years going through the Giants when he was managing the Giants, trying to get him. They actually gave me a 10 minute window to talk to him at a Mets game. in I think it was 2014, but I had a family commitment and I couldn't make it. I had to cancel, which was disappointing, but I also knew I needed more than 10 minutes anyway. So, you know, what was the point? Uh, so the years go by, I reach out to them every couple months, every season. Hey, how's it going? Maybe this year we can make this happen. And then he announced his retirement and you know, you kind of, at, at one point I was, it was really disappointing, but then on the other point I said, 
I'll just take this into my own hands. I don't have to worry about the Giants anymore. Uh, so in 2020, I had a couple numbers of his that I thought might be connected to him, but I wasn't sure. I called the numbers. One went through. I left a message and saved it into my phone as Bruce Bochy question mark and didn't know what to expect. And a week or two later, I got a call back and I, I assumed it might be a wrong number, but I answered it. And there's that gravelly voice. There's Bruce Bochy. Uh, we ended up setting a time and talking for 45 minutes. And that was really special. Um, another one that I kind of went to similar means to get was actually Bobby Cox. Uh, and this was five, six years ago. This is before some of the health issues he's faced. But um, I called him. I called the number associated with him. And he answered the phone and he said, a tree just fell on my house. Can you call me tomorrow? And I said, sure, happy to. So I called him the next day and we ended up talking for 10 or 15 minutes. And he filled in some gaps for me. And it's like, this is Bobby Cox. This is Bruce Bochy. It's, it's neat to, to talk to these guys. Call me back after I take the ha- a tree off my house. Uh, <laughs> one of the people you talked to was the man who wrote the original SI piece, Tom Verducci. Tell us about talking to Tom and, and how Kennedy's story was really the catalyst to the larger Sports Illustrated investigation. Talking to Tom was also a challenge because he's difficult to track down. He's not on Twitter. He doesn't have an easily accessible email address. I actually found a business card of his on eBay that was being sold that had a phone number on it. And I called that number. And That's reporting. Yes. That's how I found Tom <laughs> Rattucci. Um, so I, you know, and the interesting thing about it was, obviously, this was a major story for his career. Uh, and, and he should be proud of it. He did a great job. It's interesting looking at the gen- genesis of that story and how it started actually with the CNNSI producer, Jules Bailey, who had been, you know, interested in reporting on steroids and baseball. She calls Ken. Ken says, hey, I'm at this motorcycle rally in Nevada. Come on out. I have nothing to hide. Bring a camera. Uh, so he does this on-camera interview with Jules and admits to using steroids. And because CNNSI was shutting down, they said, let's give this story to Tom Verducci to advance in the magazine for Sports Illustrated. Uh, let's ha- let him carry this forward, which is pretty common in bigger outlets like that. And he got the story. He went down to Houston. He had been subsequently simultaneously as Jules was, um, you know, interested in the story. Like a lot of other people, he was also focused on this. And he had heard from a lot of other clean players who were complaining to him. Uh, Brian Johnson, the former catcher, was one of them. Uh, There were so many players who were frustrated and upset that this playing field wasn't level. You know, and they wanted some exposure, some, some, you know, credible, realistic reporting on this. And they were really asking for help. And, um, you know, Caminiti's interested in talking. Tom Verducci went down to Texas to Ken's house and met with him there and talked over a couple hours. And, you know, Ken just didn't hold back. He just, you know, he was he was out of rehab. He was interested in, you know, owning his truth and, and you know, being honest and open. And he didn't, in his mind, have anything to hide. So he didn't. He didn't hold back. And, you know, the story is full of some white white truths, half-truths, um, you know, white lies. Um You know, there were some things that he fudged a little bit to protect people close to him. Uh, But at the end of the day, I mean, this was an MVP saying, I use steroids to win my MVP award. I don't regret using steroids. That was a huge moment in baseball, a huge story. And it was a firestorm. It really set in motion a lot of the reforms and changes that would come in the years ahead. 
you know, we, we talk about somebody like Jose Canseco and, and, and why he did it. And, and, and people questioned his motives at the time. Ken Caminetti comes out. What did you learn from, from writing this book and researching this book about what his real motivation was and what a struggle it was for him to deal with the after effects of him coming out? It really was all about honesty and, and truth and, and moving forward with his life. I really think he was interested in letting teams know that, you know, he was moving in the right direction. You know, he gets arrested in this Houston hotel room in late 2001, which is a huge, huge issue, a huge mess. Um, it's basically the end of his career. Like no team's going to take a chance on him after that happened. And I think he wanted to let teams know that he was um, following the right path and, and, you know, moving forward with his life in a good direction. So I think that was a big reason for him wanting to come forward. And, you know, he just wanted to be honest and open and look to a future in his life. And he wasn't expecting that firestorm. There's no way he was expecting it. You know, there were so many players who came forward, blasting him, trashing him, calling him a rat. There were certainly some that uh, were concerned or expressed, um, you know, sensitivity or sympathy for him but so many of them were just uh trashing him and it's it's kind of ironic and sad because some of those players who are coming forward you know and and criticizing him are getting steroids from the same place as he was you know and it's that it's really that 50 percent total which is it's kind of interesting too because so many players over those years put out different numbers 30 percent jose canseco was 85 percent which Still seems really, really high. There's no way it was that high. But, you know, whatever the number is, you know, Ken throws out a number and these other players just focused on that and couldn't get past that. And uh, it, it was a real shame. And, you know, in the years ahead, in the, the final years of his life, he really struggled with those situations where he was around the game you know he came back in 2003 to San Diego for the close of the stadium and he was worried he was going to get booed he was worried how his other fellow players are going to act around him how they're going to feel about him and so many people loved him and adored him and yet he was worried about the repercussions and and the boos and you know people um criticizing him and it's 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 a shame because he was so beloved and so appreciated do you think he would have gotten the pushback he did if he just said, I did it without saying 50% of baseball's doing it? Is that what really created the firestorm that putting that onus on the player to prove that he wasn't that one out of every two people using, according to Ken Gaminetti? I think that was a big part of it. You know, and I think that it was just an offhand comment. That's what's so silly about it. It was an offhand comment. You know, Tom asked him how many you know, what percentage he thinks as people ask me, what percentage do you think are using? I have no idea, but I don't think there was really a clear way of knowing. Um, but, you know, he throws out this number and I, I think the players really struggled with that, that number, because it basically means which camp are you in? Are you in this camp? Or are you in that camp? And uh, every single player is now potentially part of that 50%. And, you know, Ken's, uh, credibility on this topic was really high. I mean, he had nothing to nothing to gain. He was not trying to burn bridges. He was simply telling the truth. And that truth was difficult and complicated for Major League Baseball to have to confront in public. You said that Ken's disclosure was bigger than sports. It was a national news story, a black eye for the national pastime. You know, we saw congressional hearings. We saw changes in law. Can you expand on the impact that this had outside of the lines of the baseball field? 
I mean, it was it was mentioned at the State of the Union address in 2004, not specifically Ken, but I really think it was a big part of, you know, uh, George W. Bush is talking about performance enhancing drugs and in sports and athletics and the message it sends for kids. Um, It was a bigger thing. I mean, it's it's, you know, ahead of stories about the Middle East uh, war. It's ahead of stories about Catholic church sex abuse uh, on the day of the release and. You know, it, it just set repercussions throughout the game and throughout society. You know, at that point in time with the Maguire Sosa home run chase with Barry Bonds, I feel like baseball was a bigger part of the conversation on a national level than maybe it is today. Um, and I, for Ken to come forward, it really just sent ripple effects throughout uh, the athletic world, throughout the country. Um, you know, it, it's really something when you see Washington weighing in and getting involved. And and really that public pressure was what forced the Major League Baseball Players Association to finally agree to even, you know, some basic rounds of drug testing, because up to that point, they were hardly, you know, strongly against it and they didn't want to budge at all. And that really forced their hand to say, OK, we'll agree to a limited testing program. And if 5% of players test positive next year, then it will, you know, ramp up and increase. And it really just kind of set everything in motion from there, but it was a massive thing. I mean, it was a massive story. You look at sports illustrated and the fact that 10 years later, they're putting it on the cover again, saying 10 years after this huge story, let's talk about it some more. It was, it was a major flashpoint in sports and it was a major flashpoint in, uh, in baseball. Well, and that leads me to an interesting point, which is th- this is a book. It takes years to write a book and research a book like this. A- as time went on and we got a little further away from the admission, did you find that people were less likely or more likely to talk about the subject? That's a really good question. I think that because of Ken's connection to this, I was actually able to ask questions into steroids and PEDs in baseball in a way that wasn't as direct because I could say, you know, what was your reaction when he came forward? And then it opens up new lines of questioning based on that. um, It was really interesting to be able to talk to players and managers and people around the game for that reason. With that said, I think that um, players of that time period have become entrenched in their own talking points and positions. So even when this topic comes up, they kind of already have this, answer in mind. They will only go so far. You know, they might say, um, you know, it's a shame that this had to happen. It's a shame about this era. I was playing clean and it's a shame that other players from my era were using and I get, you know, implicated in that, uh, that it wasn't a level playing field. Uh, Players are going to do what they're going to do. So they've kind of gotten entrenched in the answers that they give or the positions within the conversation that they will provide. Um, and it, it's, it's fascinating because even all these years later, they're not really open to admitting to what they're doing because of the stigma surrounding it. And that stigma still exists even 20 years later. It's interesting you say that because a few years ago, I was lucky enough to have a one-on-one conversation with Bud Selig when he had his book out. And I, I tried to push him because I grew up in the chicks dig the long ball advertising yes. era. Like that was targeted at me. I was going to college. I was watching. Well, not because you hit the long ball. No, not at all. Right. Okay. It, Let's just make that clear. I was watching <laughs> McGuire. So it's a chase. Selig wouldn't engage on it at all. 
It was just a willful ignorance of, of saying, no, we did not benefit from steroids. When in reality, baseball came back on the back of steroids being taken by their, their players. Is that a common thing that, you know, you see it, they want to not put them in the, the hall of fame. They want to not just like, they want to make the era go away. Is that even possibly realistic for them? Or where does this conversation end about steroids in baseball? You're exactly right. I'm, and, and I've been frustrated at that point. I mean, Bud Selig was being interviewed and asked about steroids as early as 1995. You know, you had players at different points, 1998, you know, uh, coming forward, complaining, you know, that this game wasn't balanced and fair. You know, this was happening. This was open. It's really disappointing that um, people like Bud Selig, you know, owners, managers, other people around the game have been able to benefit or skate responsibility when everybody in the game deserves that connection to it. Everybody who was in the game at that point in time is a part of this. This isn't just the players by themselves and they should be held accountable and Barry Bond should be out of the hall of fame. You know, if, if Bud Selig's in the hall of fame and there's other players from that era who are in the hall of fame, including some such as David Ortiz who have faced you know, drug scrutiny, uh, questions about whether they failed a drug test. You know, it really goes beyond this. And it's really disappointing where we, we have these moral ambiguities and these boundaries set up where, you know, this person needs to be held accountable, but not this person. I, I don't I don't I don't see that. And I think that ultimately, um, you know, people like Bud Selig bear uh, a big share of the responsibility as well for this. It's not just the players. I mean, the players were doing this because contracts were on the line. Careers were on the line. They needed to stay in the lineup. They wanted to get salaries. They wanted to get paid. They wanted to get opportunities. There's so much money on the line. You know, what do you expect? So it's it's really disingenuous, um, I think, when people shy away from that topic or try to avoid responsibility for something that was happening in all of baseball. It wasn't just the players. Dan, before we let you go, this is a great book and everybody should go out and get it. Uh, since we have you on, I, I got to just ask you, you also were involved in the Nookie Johnson uh, documentary. How much fun was it doing that, doing the research in that documentary? <laughs> Digging deep. I adored Nucky. He was so fascinating. You know, it was interesting um, diving into, you know, Southern New Jersey history, looking at his influence as this political boss and and really just you know, developing Atlantic City for what it was. And, you know, obviously he had some gangster connections and, you know, he, um, you know, he, his story was interesting because you look at the HBO show and it's, it doesn't have anything to do with who this guy actually was. He doesn't even look like him. Uh, so it was kind of weird and jarring to see the show and know that the reality is so much different than um, what was presented on air, but um, it was a fascinating story. And I, I ultimately think I, I've been drawn to these kind of forgotten or overlooked people. And um, obviously Nelson Johnson did a great job with the book uh, about Nucky, but um, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. 1920s Atlantic city seems like it was a really neat place. 
Like I worked in Jersey politics for 20 years along with being a radio show host. So uh, I, I'm with you on that. It's a fascinating tale of story. Dan will be doing a documentary on you someday. No, no. But plenty <laughs> of the people that I work for are probably up up for that. Dan Good, uh, we her- encourage everybody to go out and get this new book, Playing Through the Pain, the biography of Ken Gaminetti. Thank you so much for the time and, and talking about that era with us. We wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, you have a great day. You too. Jeff, you got your Nucky Johnson, your Nucky question in along with all the baseball talk. I'm, I'm impressed. You, you didn't let him go without that. Yeah, well, it's time for us to finish our discussion on Joe Girardi, I guess. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to smooth transition from, from Nucky to Joe Girardi? Yeah. We'll, we'll hang for the break. We'll just play the, uh, the, our advertiser, the operating engineers, right at the end of the show. We'll just keep talking since we got about nine minutes left, if that's okay with the guys on the board. Just drop yeah, just yeah. so you can be sad just a little bit more. I mean, just one more thing about the, about the book. By the way, you and I have both had a chance to read the book. And it, it is a fascinating account because when you think about the steroid area, who's the first person you think about when it, when it comes to it all coming out? It was Jose Canseco. Yes, but he was not the credible source of the information that led to what all happened next. That I believe was Ken Ken Caminetti because he was somebody who you didn't associate with all the bravado and everything else. If Ken Caminetti had said eighty five percent were using, would he have been believed? No, no, he wouldn't. And it could could have been true for all we know. But I do. But he wouldn't have been believed for it. And 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 I, you never got the impression that he was coming out with this information because he wanted publicity. He, Look, he was unburdening himself is what it seemed like he was doing. I, I Like I asked, I think the reason it got such pushback is because he didn't just own up to it himself, mm-hmm. put everybody on blast and open them up to the question, are you this? It's, it's like... But let's, let's assume it was 50%. That means 50% of the players were silently cheering too because 50% of the players weren't cheating. And those 50% were we're not just being hurt in statistics. What people don't understand is those statistics are money. So I, people are, and people are losing their jobs because of other people cheating. So, okay. I agree with you, but I will also paint a devil's advocate argument that the TV contracts they got that led to the salary increases, that got those players paid in additional roster spots came from the steroid era of baseball because my dad still to this day will not buy a ticket to the game because of that strike in 95. And that was the way that they got people back. They got the long ball. They got entertainment. You can't turn it off. You can't miss. ESPN will break in on every game for Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa to home run. ESPN will hire somebody and send them to travel around and follow Barry Bonds for every game. Baseball banked on that, and so did the same TV contracts. That Yeah, but the, the, not, every, not all boats rose as a result of that. No, Barry Bonds boat rolled and Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and the stars of the game got more money. The people at the bottom didn't get more money. And a lot of those people didn't make it to the major leagues and stay in the major leagues because they weren't willing to cheat. Didn't the teams make more money? Yeah, but that's not the players. We all know that it doesn't trickle trickle down economics isn't working in major league baseball. That's always the thing is it doesn't trickle down. Right. So, so to to believe, I understand what your argument is. I just don't buy it when it came to a large swath of, of the major league players and the minor league players is that if not everybody, if everybody was going to cheat, that's one thing. Okay. Then it's just a question of, are you okay with cheating and not cheating? 
but it's but if not everybody's going to do it then then it's just not it's not fair and it's not right and sports is supposed to be about fair competition look you you know i feel that you can't erase history i think they should go in if they're worthy and there should be an asterisk that says that they played in this era i think the story should be told can we talk about something else just for a minute in this? Look, I'm, I'm the last person or one of the last people to, to sit there and pat the Eagles on the back. But I think we should spend a couple minutes um, talking about it's unfortunate the reason that they're doing it. But the fact of what the Eagles are doing uh, right now and then next week with regard to turning over their stadium to the Philadelphia Police Department, I believe, in order to do a gun buyback. Yeah, look, the, the team wore orange jerseys during today's OTAs to commemorate survivors. And Jeffrey Lurie put out a strong statement um, calling for legislative changes. Assault weapons loaded with high-capacity magazines are a clear threat to public safety and should be banned. Research shows that a federal ban was still in place. There would be 70% fewer mass shootings. Mandatory universal background checks could have a significant impact by ensuring they don't get into the wrong hands. I mean, he did not shy away from taking a stand on this issue. And and we've seen the Eagles with what they're doing. The union um, with union. Ali Bedoya. Al, Ali Bedoya has been outspoken for years. Last year, was it last year when he spoke into the microphone after his goal that said, do something, Congress? The team wore orange and gun violence shirts. They're putting out stats on their social accounts. We've seen, we talked last week about um, the Yankees and Rays during their game dedicated their whole game of social accounts to gun violence statistics. I, I just, I think it's important having been through this on the political side of the argument that we don't make it an either or because every side re- retreats to their own camp. And I think people have to put all their ideas out on the table and talk about what can work and be doable. Well, but for, from our standpoint, what we do in this show, it, it's about it's about using your platform. And they're not using their platform, in my opinion, for political reasons. They're using their platform because people die and, and they're trying to deal. I mean, you saw the Buffalo Bills did something a week ago and raised a million dollars. It's the fact that these athletes and these teams, when it comes to the community, care more than people understand. Is it a helplessness that they feel, though, that that they can only do so much with their platform? No, I think it's the opposite. I think the fact is that if they were helpless, they would do nothing at all. I think the fact that they are willing to go out there and willing to take because there are going to be people who take there are going to be people who take shots at Jeffrey Lurie. There are going to be people that take shots at Ali Bedoya. In my you know, opinion, and I don't think the, I don't think those people care. I think that that those people that are speaking out and using their platform believe they're doing good, and they do they're doing it because while there is a helplessness aspect to it, it's there is something they can do. What Jeffrey Lurie, if one person uses the opportunity and walks into that stadium next week and turns over their gun, Jeffrey Lurie had made an impact, right? Do you think that we're going to see more of this with teams? They, they have a lot of community engagement, but as guns become more prevalent and as the political conversation bears itself out, do we think we'll see athletes who come from many different communities that have had different gun violence issues? And let's be clear, it's not just cities, it's suburbs, it's everywhere. 
So do we, do we think we're going to see more athletes who have, have encountered these situations using their, their platform? It seems like there's less fear to speak up about this issue, which hasn't been one that people wanted to talk about as much. No, I, th- I think you're going to see more of it because athletes are feeling more comfortable doing it. I think because of social media and because they're able to take control of their own voice instead of it always being through reporters and reporters have a very important role in this, but because they're social media and they can get their own, their own word out their own way. I think they feel more comfortable in these types of situations in being able to express that voice. Look, and I think along with the mental health conversations that we have, the vulnerability of these athletes to show that they're not just robots who play a sport or who train and go and play. They, they don't just, quote, stick to sports. They go out there and make sure that they're using the platform they have to make sure that people can make a difference. Yeah, I agree. So we have, I don't know how much time we have left, but it is time for you to pick who's going to win the Stanley Cup Finals. I think Colorado. They're really good. I mean, we're only in we're only in the in, in the conference finals now, but looking at Colorado, do they not look better than like any team by a mile? It's so depressing watching them because they're so good and the Flyers are so far away from that. Oh, like, they're not one player away? Nathan McKinnon is so talented and so fast and so skilled with the puck. Yeah, and, and you could say about that about half their team. The games are highly entertaining. Like the record for goals in a series is 70. So, so how, did, how does Joe Sackick amass this kind of talent and the Flyers aren't literally not signing the guys that they draft? How did that Because happen? they figured out that he can't skate well. <laughs> how did you draft a guy then? I, what kind of scouting was going on there? Do they have the Philly scouts? Well, no, the Phillies are promoting their scouting coordinator my so that he can now coach this, these guys. Great. Can we continue after the show where he goes with the Flyers farm system? And I feel Sure. If you want to ruin the rest of your weekend, go ahead. Oh, my goodness. I just I don't know what these teams do to turn it around. And I don't want to be the pessimist. I want to be the fan that, that cheers for them. But I don't want to lose my mind and pull out my hair watching these games. It's I will go again tomorrow and I will still cheer for them. But if you want a feel good story, just go to the union game. That's the funny thing, though, because I text. Well, they're on international break, so I can't. Now. <laughs> but I texted you the other night about a decision I didn't like that you're already made. And you're like, I don't watch anymore. You don't watch when they're on TV, but you will go to the game to subject yourself. Oh, I, I love going. To, it's just relaxing. Oh, it, it, it's 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 something that is feel good at least until the seventh inning. <laughs> all right. Any final thoughts, Jeff? That was the final. Thought. That's all you got to say. Thanks, Andrew Bellotti is the thanks, final thought. Thanks so much for joining this week. Make sure to have, join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.